been at this for a few weeks now, talking about religion. Religion is a fascinating topic. Lots of ways we could go and lots of ways we have gone. But today, what I'd like to do, I think we're going to kind of wrap up here, is talk about what may be for many people one of their biggest objections, one of, their big, one of the biggest obstacles they have to overcome. And maybe this is something that you deal with or have dealt with or have talked to people about. One of the biggest obstacles people have in becoming, we might say, becoming a Christian or accepting faith in Christ Jesus. And it's, it's actually an interesting thing as we'll go through it. What I want you to, to see today is that often we mistake emotional reactions for intellectual arguments. And we take our emotion, our uncomfortableness with something, and we try to turn it around into something that is very intellectual. I, I saw a video, um, you, you know who Robbie Zacharias is? How many of you know who Robbie Zacharias is? Okay, well, if you don't know who he is, he's a Christian apologist. He's from India, and he travels all over the world, and particularly one of the things he loves to do is go to universities, to colleges, and have Discussions. He doesn't just get up and lecture, but he does, after the end of his talk, he'll do a Q&A. And there was a video segment, a video clip about him. I don't know which university it was at, but it was a fascinating exchange. Um, one of the, the students was getting up to ask his question of, of Robbie Zacharias, and, and this was his basic question to Robbie, who's a Christian, who's a believer in Jesus, who subscribes to a biblical worldview, biblical morality. The student asked him, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reality? Why, Robbie, are you so afraid of a subjective morality? Why do you insist that everything has to come out of a book? And if we didn't have that book that we base our whole morality on, why do you think that the world would just go crazy, that there'd be just rapes and pillage and plundering all over the place? And that sounds like a pretty tough question, doesn't it? That'll put you on your defensive. And I was curious, having heard that question, how in the world is he going to address that? Because maybe you've thought that, or maybe you've had that question asked of you. And so now it's Robbie's turn. He gets up to the microphone, and he asks a simple question. He asks the student, and he asks him this. Do you lock your door at night? I stopped the video. I'm like, that's brilliant. I can't believe how brilliant that is. That is a wonderful question. How many of you lock your door at night? You do. Wonderful. We had some friends that used to live here, and they said, for the longest time in the Keys, we didn't even have to lock our doors at night. But now, you have to lock your door at night. We've done that all along. Why do you lock your door at night? Safety. What are you afraid of? Lots of stuff, right? is shaped, to some degree, whether you want to admit it or not, by a biblical worldview, by right and wrong, by conscience, by you should and you should not. And wherever you go in the world, no matter what the religion you find, and we talked at length about this, was this last week? It feels like a long time ago. That wherever you go, whatever religion you find, all of them have rules. All of them have certain things that they expect their adherents to do or to not do. And in that conversation, I was struck. And he went on and, and talked about it. Actually, the student comes back at him and says, well, what about China? 
China's a secular country, and look, China's great. And then Dr. Zacharias begins to say, are you remembering this and this and this and the 60 million people that have come in? He went on and on. And it was really fascinating to watch this, this thing, but it was over to me as soon as he asked this very simple question. I just said, Dr. Zacharias, what are we so afraid of? What is the issue with us? And, and, and so when we think about that, here's where I want us to go. Here's where we're going to end up. Well, there'll be a lot. Here's where we might end up. It's really worse than you thought. And it's going to take more than you can imagine to fix it. If you ever look at the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, um, just a few verses today. Romans chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 5, I believe. Chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6 and go through verse 8. And see in just these few verses, and some of you may know Romans 5, they've got some of those Bibles you memorize, you saved that Bible. When we get there, you, it might be a rather familiar thing for you, but in Romans 5, 6, Paul begins this discussion, and he opens up some things, and we're going to camp out here for a few minutes. Romans 5, verse 6, says this, you will be up on the screen, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that's where we left off last week. So I guess what I could do is say, okay, we're just going to take like a 45-minute break, and everybody stream last week's message on iTunes, because that's what keeps me in the coma sometimes. That's where we left off last week. We talked at length about the fact that Christ died for the sins. In fact, we said what happened at his birth was the angel said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. And Jesus enters the scene and takes upon himself this penalty, this death, that there is good news that because every religion ever imaginable puts out rules, puts out commandments, however you'd like to, to term them, thou shalt and thou shalt not, and because everybody in here, yes, that means you, has broken at least one of them. Is that correct? At least one. Then we have a problem with God. And the, the answer that Jesus presents, the answer of the Christian faith is, God has done something to overcome that problem you have with Him. There's this gap between what you expect, what God expects, and how you behave. And so Jesus comes in, and He dies for you. And notice it says, when we were still powerless. And we talked a lot last week about why are we powerless. It means what that has in mind is the fact that what we try to do is to do it our way to God. We think if we can just be better, if we just have a second chance, if we just try harder, somehow God will be more impressed with our efforts and we can make up for the mistakes we've made in the past and, and somehow overcome that. We try to so hard to be good and, and we put together systems of how to be good and we have all these ideas of what we're going to do, but we found out that the law is powerless to save you. You, in fact, can't be good enough to overcome what you've done in your past. You can't undo what's already been done. And so we needed a, a solution to that. So God comes in and he does something for us. And one of the objections to Christianity is the last word in that verse because it's not a nice word. Even nicer. Another word that means the same thing in this context. But it says Christ died for the ungodly. Here's your good news today. You are ungodly. Amen. Amen. In fact, let's just turn to our neighbor 
remind them that they are, in fact, sons of God the Father. No, seriously. I mean, with gusto, like you mean it. You've been wanting to say it for a while, some of you. Just tell them. Let them have it. Hellfire damnation, go. Christ died for the ungodly. I am ungodly. Isn't that a little bit uncomfortable? And here's the thing. I don't think I'm that bad. Because I compare myself to you. that I'm not really as good as I want you to think I am, that I've made mistakes, that I can't keep the standards that religion sets, no matter what the religion. I can't even live up to my own expectations of myself, much else a perfect God. And and then I, I need to have something done about that. And what Christianity says is, at just the right time, we're powerless, Christ died. And, and then it gets narrow. It says, not only is it uncomfortable to admit you're not as good as you say you are, but there's only one answer to that problem, and that is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And many people cry, that's not fair. That's too narrow. You're really saying that with all the stuff happening in the world, with all the religions that are out there, with all the systems of belief, you Christians really think you have the only answer to this problem. And Christianity, belief in Jesus Christ, in fact, has to say, yes. says, that's not fair. What about those who never hear about Jesus? You know, that's a really good question. I'm not going to answer it today. What about this? What about that? That's unfair. And, and, and it goes the next step. And the idea is, you know, if God is as big and as good and as powerful as you say he is, surely he could come up with some fair solution to this problem. Because, after all, we are the arbiters of what is fair, right? But, but here's the thing you know in your everyday walking around life. Just because something is unfair, and just because something might make you uncomfortable, does not mean it's automatically untrue. One of the causes right now that we hear a lot about is human trafficking. The statistic that I've heard is there are more slaves on the face of the earth today than there's ever been in human history. That accounts for what we think of maybe slavery like you would imagine it, but also sex slavery has a huge percentage of those who are trafficked. And when I think about young girls, when I look at my daughter and think about what would I have thought if five, eight, ten years ago, Somebody had kidnapped her and locked her in a room and allowed other men, adult, grown men, to pay money to sexually abuse my daughter. That makes me pretty uncomfortable. And there's no way you can tell me that's fair. But it is absolutely true in our world. 
that little girl was treated that way. Two years ago, we were on a mission trip to South America. We've talked about this several times here because you've gone to Uruguay. It's a very poor area. And one of the things we did as part of that trip was we took a tour of the neighborhood. And as we were walking, we went through what was generally considered the worst part of this neighborhood. Um, and I remember it well because of what I saw. But what happens in, in this country, in Uruguay, is um, the old garbage dumps, when they're no longer used as garbage dumps, people can begin to colonize them. They begin to throw up very basic shelter because, you know, the land's not something they sell. It's just available, and they kind of a squatter's right shelter. And so a whole community grows up on a garbage dump. You know, we drive up the turnpike, and you know we're getting close because we see the birds and we smell the smoke, right? That's their home. That's underneath their their house. And their house doesn't have a concrete slab that it sits on. It's dirt floors. That's their... And, and things of that, and we were there our summer, but because it's South America, it's there whenever it was cold there. We were treated. It must have been, what, in Floridian? Freezing like crazy. And so we're taking a walk through the neighborhood. We've got our heavy coats, gloves, hats, scarves. You know, it's cold out there. And we walk down the street, the worst part of the neighborhood, and, and on the ground, out, not in a house, just out sitting there, is a little boy, a toddler. Can't be more than two, three years old. All he's wearing is a diaper and a, like a, a small shirt. And he's sitting on this garbage dump. And I know it's a garbage dump because this is garbage that's around him. And he's picking up pieces of garbage and playing with it. unfair to that child? But it's absolutely true in the experience of thousands, if not millions, of kids around the world. See, we're born in America, most of us, I would imagine, good Baptist. Nothing fair about it. I mean, it just happens. You just happen to be born in Florida. In this country, with all its freedoms and all its prosperity. And I have enjoyed the benefits that come with that. I didn't earn them. It's not like there's something better about me than that little boy sitting on a garbage heap in South America that I deserve this and he deserves that. No, it's not fair just to me and that's him. But is it true? No. So we take an emotional response to something in Christianity. I don't think that's fair. That there's only one way to God. It makes me uncomfortable that you would call me something like ungodly. So therefore, it can't be true. That's an emotional reaction. That's not a logical argument. That logical argument doesn't work anywhere else in your world. And it's actually counterintuitive to what you know. Because if I were to ask you today to come up with a list of things that are absolutely fair as you judge fairness and make you perfectly comfortable in how you live your life, and are also true, that's a short list. In fact, it's no accident that in one of Disney's movies, The Lion King, the evil lion, Scar, my favorite lion, is when he says, forgive me, for 
You know that in every part of your life. But when it comes to this, suddenly we bow our back and we say, because it's unfair, because it makes me uncomfortable, it must not be true. And if there is a God out there, somewhere that's really powerful and really loving or whatever other word we throw at him, there's got to be a way that somehow he could take this system and come up with a fair, comfortable solution, not an unfair, narrow, name-called an uncomfortable thing like that. just like us, which means this, everybody who's ever lived, everybody knows that there are certain standards, whether it's because of their religious background or because of their moral compass or because of their general feeling of right and wrong, they know there are certain standards and everybody that's ever lived has messed up, has fallen short of those standards. We live in a world full of fallen short people. Because we're really good at comparing ourselves to others, we've kind of gotten used to the fact that we're all sort of messed up. We're all fallen short people in a fallen short world, and so we don't think it's that bad. We don't realize what it was meant to be when God designed it and what it will be one day when he writes everything that's wrong. But as we go through this 2016 kind of a life, we just sort of look around, and this is normal. People try hard and want to do good, but ultimately sometimes, here's our word, they make mistakes. Anybody ever made a mistake? Oh, good. I'm not talking to the people that I know. That, that's, in fact, our word that we like to use in our culture in our day, mistake. We all make mistakes, don't we? After all, nobody's perfect. And if it was just a mistake, that'd be fine. But it's worse than that. Because what is a mistake? I mean, I didn't bring my Webster's Dictionary, although somebody could probably pull it up on their phone real quick. No, I won't. But a mistake, as I think about it, and I think as it's defined, if you were to look it up, is sort of a, I didn't mean to kind of a thing. Like, if I get my statement from the bank and I'm going to balance my checkbook, anybody still do that, by the way? No, okay, so check it every day. Okay, well, let's say I'm pulling up my online statement of account on a Thursday because it's Thursday and I've got to do it, and I want to make sure all the transactions are right because identity theft is rampant and I've got to make sure nothing's out of order. And I notice that the bank says I should have this much, and when I do the math, I'm like four cents off. And so I go back and check. And I find out that in one point of subtraction for one of the debits or one of the checks, I mean a white check, one of the debits, I made a mistake in my subtraction. Right? That's a mistake. I'm at your house, and I accidentally bump into your coffee table, and a lamp falls off and breaks. Well, I'm sorry. That's a mistake, right? But last Monday, maybe some of you had to do that thing we all love to do every year. 
correspond with those gracious people in Washington, D.C. that were called by those three little brothers that are currently sitting in this room. And maybe somebody somewhere, certainly not here, I'm not saying it's you, decided, you know, if I just not report this income, my tax bills could have been better. In fact, if I don't report this income I made on this side job, the, the government's actually going to owe me a refund. I'm not going to have to pay them that 15.3% self-employment tax plus the income tax on top of that based on... So, you know what? I'm just going to do the same thing. Because after all, what harm is it? No harm. Or maybe... Maybe I shouldn't push too much, but <laughs> sleep well enough alone. But, but is that a mistake? That's different than a mass error on my checkbook, isn't it? I mean, that was something I, I knew I was doing and did it anyway. And probably in about a year from now, I might think through those same things and make the same decision again. Is that a mistake? Sounds like a mistake. I'm pretty sure I didn't know any better or I missed that in addition. That sounds a little more purposeful. That says nothing about this. Yeah, I know this is not your life. But have you ever... This isn't for you. This isn't for you. Or maybe it should be. Maybe I should start there. And, and you say, yeah, it looks great on me. And as you walk away, you're thinking, yeah, it's better than this. Or, or how about that person in the office that, like, is doing this project and has a huge problem with it and got reprimanded by the boss? whole time you were thinking, because if they look bad, I can't look bad. Is it? That's not a mistake, is it? That's something deeper. That's something not that you do, but it's more about who you are on the inside. And that's when you kind of step back and think, well, that's not fair. Who you are when they don't look good and who you are when people are trying to cheat. But that's not just mistake. That's not just sorry, didn't mean to. That's more purposeful. That's more clear. That's more deeper purpose. So you're, you're not a mistake maker. You know what goes on. In other words, we'll see a little bit later, some other church building leaders, it won't be the hardware guy. You're not just a mistake or you're a sinner. Because sometimes we do things we know aren't right and do it anyway. And you plan to do it again anyway, don't you? Let's figure this out. See, you're more broken than you want to admit. And our world is more broken than we want to admit. And so when we want to say, you know, this idea of Christianity is narrow and so it's unfair, or it starts name-calling, so it makes me uncomfortable, we are backing away from this reality that this world really not just scratched, and you can put a band-aid on it and it'll be all better. It's fundamentally flawed to its core, and we with it. And so we, when we come to that un- 
understanding of the severity of sin, we need a God who's not dumbed down to our standards. We need a God, in fact, who does not treat us fairly. Because what happens in our world, what is fairness or justice in our world? It's when you do something wrong, you're supposed to pay for it. We have a whole legal system, a whole court system, that people go before judges and are accused of things, and when they're convicted of those things, there is a penalty to pay. And we've already said, you've already admitted here today, you have failed to meet the standards of God or religion or even your own expectations. And if you want it fair, then you deserve to be So what we don't need is God to be fair. What we do need is God to forgive and be merciful and give us grace. Let's look at it this way. I'm sure you've all been to the doctor before. Maybe some of you have even had surgery before this past week. And I would guess when you're sitting with the doctor or sitting with the surgeon before that procedure schedule, the question that's not the most important in your mind is, is this going to be comfortable for my foot? As you cut into my flesh and through muscle walls and take things out or put things in or whatever, my mom had a total knee replacement a few years ago. My brother, who is a funeral director and has no problem with human anatomy in its barest form, decided to show me the video of what happens during a knee replacement. That was my answer. It is not for the weak of stomach to watch a video of a knee replacement operation. It is brutal. They don't treat the patients gently. It doesn't look comfortable. But not too much long after that brutal procedure that was very uncomfortable for my mom, she walked a whole lot better. So the question wasn't, isn't, is this going to be comfortable? Because if it's going to be uncomfortable, I don't want it. No, her question was, is this going to be and if it's effective, it doesn't matter that it's going to make me uncomfortable. If it has the result I need, I'm willing to go through it. And maybe that's the better question we need to ask in matters of religion, of faith, of Jesus. That when we look at this, when this verse says, you are ungodly, the question isn't, does that make you uncomfortable? The question is, does this lead to something that's effective for the problem that's been identified? Because I... So into this reality, into this broken world, into a world that needs drastic measures, comes Jesus. And what happens to him isn't fair, as we imagine fairness. And what happens to him isn't comfortable. But rather than be fair to you by giving you what you deserve, God chose to give it to his son. Discussion, but remember, we're contrasting who we are, ungodly. Remember that, right? Remember we're ungodly? We got to the end of that chapter, but there's a, a sentence. And it says, Rarely will anyone. 
someone die for a righteous man. And maybe, possibly, someone might for a good man. But we've already established there's no one here that's righteous, and there's no one here that's good. We're all ungodly. So, this verse tells us, who would die for you as bad as you are? You're broke. You're messed up. You've blown it. Why should you think anybody would step in on your behalf? You don't deserve it. In fact, what you deserve in a fair system is punishment. And so he's established this. Now, I know we don't talk about this very often. A lot of times this is a verse you might see during maybe a, a military memorial day or Veterans Day because we know this is kind of the idea we have for our military. And we're grateful that they step in and fight for our country and we celebrate their sacrifice and we remember their sacrifice, all of that is there. But this is saying, look, there is someone who has made a sacrifice for you and not because you deserve it. You know, we talk about our military. They go into parts of the world that have all sorts of things happen, whereas we value freedom as one of those things that we have and want the rest of the world to have, and we proudly support our military people because they fight for the rights of those who are oppressed at times. Here we have this opposite idea that someone's fighting for you and you don't deserve it. You don't need a human. You haven't earned the right to have an advocate go to any great lengths for you. And the next verse kind of sums it up for us. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, oh, here's another word we already talked about, right? Sinners. You want to tell you something that sinners are not about judging sinners? Okay, good. Christ died for us. I, I love this verse for a lot of reasons. One reason is that first phrase. God demonstrates his own love for us. Meaning, his love, his kind of love, is different than our kind of love. What is our kind of love? Well, that was also what that last verse was about. We're only going to risk something for somebody we think really, really, really deserves it. That's stupid. Who? Charles Manson. Okay, that got the right joke. You know who that is. Who doesn't know who Charles Manson is? I'm just kidding. I'm going to guess there's some age group here. I was joking. Okay, Charles Manson. How many of you here say, yeah, if Charles Manson needs someone to step in and die for him, I'm the guy? Please, let me die for Charles Manson. No one really? I'm shocked. Why? Because we, we don't do that. That's, that doesn't make sense. We would never do that. This verse says God is the God that does that. That he steps in and sends his son to die for Charles Manson. Only Charles Manson is in that order of Charles Rosenbaum. Charles Rosenbaum is the one that does that. Charles Rosenbaum, that's not his first up words this morning, but I'm trying. Um, I'm the one that deserved what we would think Manson deserved. Because I am ungodly. I am a sinner. And that's an uncomfortable truth. But it doesn't mean it's not true. I know me better than you know me. And it's true. Take my word for it. For me, Christ died. Now, here's the question. Is that enough? Not really. Jesus, a good person, 
the feet that the account of his life in the Bible description of people that wrote down the account of his life said not only was he good, but he was perfect in his account. Kind of upsets the apple cart of norm. He walked on this earth and lived in the way that the law of God would suggest that all of us live, and he's the only one who's ever been able to do that. Having done that, this verse says he is going to die for me, for an ungodly sinner. Is that fair? Look at the account. The more question is, is that true? This, we talked about this verse says there's a God kind of love as opposed to our kind of love. Here's the other implication. There's a God kind of fairness as opposed to our kind of fairness. And when we say things like, that's not fair, we make ourselves the arbiter of all things fair or unfair. That somehow we know what is perfectly and absolutely fair in every situation. And unless something meets our standard of fairness, then it can't be fair. But if the world is really as broken as I believe it is, and as you and I know by our experience, we have made it, then can we agree maybe our standard of fair is a little broken? A little scratched. A little shattered. So I don't want to go by my standard of fair because God has a standard of fair. Like he has a standard of love that's way better than my love. A standard of love that doesn't step in for me who doesn't deserve it. His standard of fair means he's going to do something for me that is not fair on any level by allowing his son who was perfect to die instead of me. That the punishment that rightfully should be mine because I'm an ungodly sinner, I don't have to endure because Jesus is going to endure it on my behalf. Is that fair? No. unfair and incredibly uncomfortable solution. But the irony is, in what we might see from our perspective as incredibly unfair and incredibly comfortable, it's terribly fair. For several reasons. One reason this system is fair is because everybody gets in the same way. It's available for everyone. No one's left out. You know, we, we say the Bible was meant for Christians. Everyone's welcome. But it's that's the, the point. This isn't just about you and I as Christians. This isn't just about Paul as a Jewish person writing to maybe other Jews who might let them. It's not about a certain nationality. It's certain about, not about a certain part of the world. It's not about a certain way of thinking. It's not about speaking a certain language or having a certain cultural background. No, this fairness of the, the message of Jesus is that it's for everybody. For God so loved the world, not for God so loved Christians, or Baptists, or Catholics, or Jews, or Buddhists, or these people, or those people, or the other people. No, God loves the world. It's fair because it's for everybody. There's no difference. And it's fair because the standard is the same. We all get in the same way. We all get it the same way. Jesus said, I am the way. And that's where he started, by the way. He said, we know, I know. That's the sticking point of Christianity. Jesus is. 
think this is not a surprise because if you were to go somewhere and start talking about God, you might get some agreement. You might be okay. You could say generic things about God, and a lot of people are okay with it. But into that same conversation, bring up the word Jesus and back up, stop, no more. Suddenly you cross a line. God is kind of okay because a lot of people believe in God. Of all faith, they have some sort of God, some sort of higher power. But Jesus, we put a name on it. We put a person in history. We put a certain bent on it. I understand that, and that's the whole point. But this is narrow. Okay, do you want to say that? Yes, but the Bible itself says we know that this is how it works. It's narrow, yes. It, it sticks upon Jesus. It's secure. I get that. It is the sticking point. But just because you think of that, say that's too narrow, that can't be fair. Again, that's what we talked about all morning. That doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you think something is unfair. Because you know a lot of things that are unfair, they're absolutely true. And perhaps this is one of those things that to you doesn't seem fair, but it's absolutely Everyone can meet that requirement. See, there's, there's not a, a graduated scale. You, I mean, you know how fairness works in some places. Um, you know how that some people have certain standards, other people have other standards. I know this person well. It's not what you know, it's who you know, right? I, I sent out my resume when I graduated from seminary. I was going to be a preacher. I sent out my resume all over the place, and I, I, nothing. No bite. No callbacks. No interview schedule. My father-in-law, who was a preacher in Tampa, knew somebody and made a couple of phone calls. And what happens is they come and have an interview, and then I'm asked for the church in Tampa. Not because my resume was so impressive, but because my father-in-law was a pastor in Tampa and knew people at this church that needed a pastor. And then a few years later, I came to Key Largo, and he was like, oh, that was the move of God. Well, yeah, okay, but there was a pastor here. His name was Don Mancini, like in the 70s. He's one of the... In the history of the church, he was kind of one of the hero pastors. And after he left here, he went up to Lake Park, which is near West Palm Beach, which is where I went to college. And when I went to college, I went to his church, and we got to know each other. And he sort of became my mentor. And when he heard that this church was looking for a pastor, he called down here and talked to a few key people and said, hey, I might know a guy. He's okay to send your resume. And then he called me and said, can I send your resume? And then he sent it down here. And I think I could be wrong, but there was some initial resistance to this whippersnapper from Tampa coming down here until Ron Mancini made a call and talked to someone and said, at least give him a chance. And I'm sorry. Some people gave me a chance, and here we are. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is, I'm here, yes, I believe God's will and all that, but because there was a connection in some way. That's how the world works, doesn't it? You know that's how the world works. That's not how a shortcut to salvation. It's not like, hey, if you, if, if, if you know the right person, you're in. And if you don't know them, it's a little harder for you. If you know the right person, you only have to keep like three commandments and you get to pick them. But if you don't know this guy, you have to keep like 613. Anybody have shrimp this week? You're out. Is anybody wearing a cotton poly blend? You're out. We could keep going, right? 613 
sometimes the wealthy get breaks that the less wealthy don't, that there are people that have finances and are able to, to access things that you and I maybe can't afford or never could. Is that fair to say? I don't mean that badly. It's just the way the world works, isn't it? And maybe it's worked to your benefit sometimes. Good for you. Wonderful. God doesn't work that way. See, we pass that plate. You've probably saw that over guys come up and pray, and then they pass people around things, and people put money in them. And, you know, it's not like we have this computer in the back that when you're in, you're not engaged to heaven. And God's like, oh, that guy down there, he's a little short this week. He's going to have a bad week. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. The standard is the same. Everybody's welcome. Everybody can get in. Everybody can meet the requirements. What's the requirement? It's a good question. I mean, if this is true, if this is the fairness of the gospel, even though we want to say this part doesn't seem sensible or fair, what is the requirement? Well, in the Lord's Prayer, believe that when Christ died, that for us, died for me, I'm careful not to use that word, but that he had to die because I'm an ungodly sinner. That's what that requirement says right there. What'd you learn at church today, kids? We're all ungodly sinners. Can we go back next week, please, Brother Ron? What's the requirement? Faith, believe that this is for you. Admit you are exactly what you know you are. Nobody else might know because you've kept it a really big secret, but you know who you are on the inside. You know those thoughts. You know those desires. You know those things that you don't talk about at parties and you never talk about. Empty us with that testimony. Believe. And I put my faith in what Christ has done for Americans who do it our way, who are self-sufficient, we don't like the fact that Christianity on some level says you can't do it. It's like a dare to us.
good we want to be from here on out. We can't go back to yesterday or last week or the year that we're going to be here today. But we trust that Jesus Christ, Jesus, Jesus, who died for you because you were a sinner, and you know you're a sinner because of that thing that you still think about at times you regret doing, it can be forgiven and forgotten. you're mad and 